And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to our episode today. And I hope you enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, with our very special guest, Mr. Anthony Wendell, the first of the Heisei Gamera films. Very fun to talk to uh, Anthony about that uh, rather standout and remarkable film from Dai Studios. And we've got a very good episode for you today, if it's a little bit more offbeat. We're taking a look at not one, but two different Daikaiju-themed card-based games. We're taking a look at Godzilla Stomp from Toy Vault, and we're also taking a look at Rar from Ape Games. And in addition to those two games, we are also going to be continuing our coverage of Marvel's Godzilla with Godzilla number 22, featuring the second part of the story crossing over Godzilla with that other famous Marvel giant lizard, Devil Dinosaur. So very excited to get to those topics today. Uh, first off, we have a couple of news items real quick. SSS.Gridman, uh, which is the anime kind of follow-up slash reboot of uh, Gridman, which of course was uh, localized here in the United States in 1994 as Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. That has debuted in Japan, and it can be seen here on the US, in the U.S. on Simulcast on Crunchyroll. Now, as of my recording of this, three episodes have aired, so three episodes are available on Crunchyroll, two for free uh, uh, members such as myself, and one, uh, one additional, so three total episodes available if you're on the premium service. Uh, I, I have not had a chance to watch it yet, to be completely honest. It's on my watch list. Very excited for this show. Heard a lot of good things about it. I think it's really neat to see a revival of a well-remembered, if not very successful, property with Gridman. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially folks my age, remember Gridman just because of the localization here to the States, and plus it had such a unique concept, this kind of Ultraman meets Tron setup of the show. So very eager to see that anime and hope to check it out, and uh, maybe we'll talk about that here on the show at a future date. Uh, in other anime-related news, Godzilla the Planet Eater which is the third of the Godzilla anime series, the third and as of now final Godzilla anime, has been officially revealed as the title. And this debuts in Japan on November the 9th. It will come to Netflix worldwide in the same way as the two previous films did. Don't have a date, or even an estimated date really, on when uh, The Planet Eater will debut on Netflix here in the West. But as soon as we know more, we will let you know. Uh, have not had a chance yet to even watch uh, the second <laughs> one of these. Been very busy uh, sp uh, summer and fall so far here at Earth Destruction Directive, but uh, definitely gonna uh, definitely have this on the watch list as well as the second one, and uh, we will cover these at some point. Obviously, just not not this month. So that's all the news I've got this time out. If you've got any news uh, involving giant monsters, giant robots, giant robots fighting monsters, or some combination thereof, go ahead and send it in Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com, and you we will cover it here on the show, and be sure to give you credit for anybody who sends in news. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with the first of our two card games, Godzilla Stomp, right after this. Attention, attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST. Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes episode by episode the greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Jocularity! Jocularity! Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla Stomp was released in 2011 by Toy Vault, who has also released Godzilla Kaiju World Wars, which is a uh, more traditional board game with uh, miniatures and uh, building pieces. But they're best known most likely for the games 51st State and Abaddon. Those were their highest ranked games on Board Game Geek. We'll get to that in a moment. 
The designer of Godzilla Stomp was Mike Colross, and the art was by Zach Pensall and Chris Quilliams. And our description from Board Game Geek, which you can find at boardgamegeek.com, uh, no spaces or anything in there, which is a great resource for any type of tabletop gaming. They also have uh, sister sites for RPGs and video games, which I frequent very, uh, very often. Really um, recommend those sites, especially for board games. Board Game Geek is probably the best online resource for information and discussion and community around uh, the board game hobby. So if you're interested at all in board games or card games, anything you play on a tabletop, uh, that's a great place to start. And the great uh, information and resources available. So here's a description from Board Game Geek. Godzilla Stomp is a fast-paced card game of monster-induced city destruction. The game is played in a series of rounds. During each round, several buildings will be revealed and players will simultaneously choose their attack strength to destroy one or more of the buildings for the round. Play continues for six rounds, at which point players add up their scores. Highest score wins. Very straightforward description. Very straightforward game, really, as, uh, as, as you will see as we continue our coverage here. Uh, essentially, each player takes the role of one of the five monsters. We have Godzilla, Mothra, Mechagodzilla, and in this case, Kiru, Batra, and Destoroya. These monsters are represented by a set of six attack cards. The other cards in the game represent buildings. So here's how the game goes. A number of building cards equal to two more than the number of players, for example, if there are three players, we'd reveal five building cards, are placed face up on the table for all the players to see. Regular buildings range in point values from three to five to seven to nine. In addition, there are nuclear power plant cards which increase in value the more of them you destroy. The players then secretly pick one of their attack cards, which range from values 1 through 5, plus a special card called Rampage. Once everyone is ready, all of the attack cards are revealed simultaneously. The player with the highest attack card gets first pick of the buildings to destroy, which is to say, goes into their smashed pile of cards that they have won. Then the next highest attack picks, and so on until all players have gone. Ties are broken by how close the player is to the Tie Smasher, which is a title awarded to the player who destroyed the last building in the previous round. This is randomly chosen to start the game since obviously there was no round before the first. Rampage cards have the lowest attack value, but a Rampage card will get you all of the buildings still on the table. In our three-player example, if player one had played a five attack, player 2 a 3 attack, and player 3 a rampage, player 1 would get 1 card, player 2 would get 1 card, but player 3 would get the remaining 3 cards. As above, play goes on for 6 rounds in this fashion, then everyone calculates their destroyed buildings to determine which monster reigns supreme. Very, as I said, straightforward, easy game to pick up and learn. Uh, some pros for this game, it plays fast. A full game only takes about 10 to 15 minutes, and that includes adding all the scores together. Uh, it's, as I said, quick, easy to learn. The game is labeled as ages 14 plus, but is more in line with 8 plus. And again, I would only say 8 plus because of the counting. You, you know, there could be some in, you know, trouble with arithmetic at a younger player. The card art is colorful, the monsters look great. Being up to 5 players is nice, because that means it's a good game for larger families like mine which, for such a straightforward game, is a good feature. Everyone can get in on the action relatively easily. Now, on the downside, the art is very nice, but it is very limited. The buildings all use the same image for each value, and there's only two pieces of art for each monster. There's one on each of the five numbered attack cards, and then a special one for Rampage, which usually shows the monster kind of rampaging, as appropriately enough for that. Additionally, even though the Tie Smasher is a key part of the game, there's no TIE Smasher included. Now, when my brother Jason and I played this game the first time, we used the X-Ray Fish from the Fisher-Price Alphabet Zoo toy set. We thought X-Ray Fish, you know, looked a little monstrous and was an appropriate toy to use as a TIE Smasher. And I have also played this game using my Meltdown Godzilla Sofubi candy toy. Again, uh, just because it's, it's neat, it's bright orange. But Toy Vault really should have included a TIE Smasher card or perhaps a punch-out from a piece of uh, cardboard stock, or something like that. Uh, it's, it's, to me, to have something that is critical for gameplay, which the TIE Smasher is, not included, that's a bit ridiculous, especially in such a, a game that otherwise is just with cards. It could have included 
a TIE Smasher card and it would have fit right into the box and it wouldn't have been anything different and it would have allowed the players to not have to provide their own TIE Smasher, which I, I think is uh, a, a big oversight. In addition, there is little in the way of player interaction. Yes, you are bidding against each other, but there is not a take that or other player interaction feature. Now, for some players, this may be a plus. That really depends on the group that you're playing it with. But I would have liked to have seen a little bit more back and forth, and we'll get to that in our next game. The cast of monsters is good, but at the same time kind of weird. Why do we have two one-shot monsters in the form of Batra and Destoroya, but not, you know, traditional popular monsters like King Ghidorah or Rodan? Would have made more sense to me to have those guys take their place, so that we would have had the traditional cast of characters that we normally see in licensed products from Toho. Now, admittedly, it's neat to see Batra and Destoroya get some love, don't get me wrong. When, luckily enough, it would be very easy to add custom monsters, since all you would need is six cards with art and the attack ratings. And as the monster cards do not interact directly with each other, there are no issues with shuffling or sorting. As long as all your cards look the same, you can look at them and pick which one you're going to put down. It doesn't change the gameplay at all. So you could very easily get some uh, art of the different monsters, put numbers on them in Photoshop, and you know, sleeve them up if you'd like, and there you go. You've got your own custom monsters to play Godzilla Stomp with. Uh, final verdict, apparently this game is out of print, which I did not realize when I first started doing my research for this podcast. The only copy on Amazon as of this recording is from a reseller and retails for $50. This game retailed originally for about $15. I want to say, I want to say $14.99 was its MSRP. And it was at that price that I got it back in 2011 when it was first offered. It goes for around $40 now on eBay. Now, given that, here's the final verdict. It's a fun filler game for monster fans. It plays fast, it's good for younger or mixed ages crowd, it's easy to pick up. It could have been better though, if it had more art, and just simple things like including a token for the TIE Smasher. I have to say, Godzilla Stomp, even though I enjoy it, it is not worth the money it is going for right now, but if you do happen to find it on the cheap, I think it's worth a pickup, especially if you like card games. If you have a gaming group that regularly plays a more complex or heavier game, uh, always good to have a little fill-in game in between in breaks or in between other games. So if you can find it cheap and, you're, and you enjoy this type of stuff, pick it up. But don't go spending $50 for this on Amazon. It's just not worth it. Alright, that's my thoughts on Godzilla Stomp. Have you played Godzilla Stomp? If so, send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. We'll talk about it. I'm going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get back into our second game here on Earth Destruction Directive. Doctor, it burns when I pee. Me too, thanks to Atomic Flamin' Hot Cheezos, the hottest cheese-flavored puffcorn snack you can buy without a prescription. Wow, my God, that burns! But these Atomic Flamin' Hot Cheezos are worth it. Look for Atomic Flamin' Hot Cheezos behind the counter at your local pharmacy, or in your grocer's snack aisle. Atomic Flamin' Hot Cheezos. So good, they make it burn when you pee. Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. RAR which is spelled R-A-R-R-R, exclamation point, exclamation point, yes, it has two exclamation points, was released in 2014 by Ape Games, who actually published quite a number of different games, including such titles as Rolling Freight and The Great Dinosaur Rush. The designer is Michael R. Brandel, and the artist is Bob Canada. Our description from Board Game Geek goes, In RAR, players first draft monster power cards in order to build their perfect monster, then draft power bid cards to fuel their monsters' rampages through cities. Cities are destroyed using a bidding system, and players are limited in their bids by the amount of each type of power that their monster possesses. Will you build a super fire-spewing dragon monster, or a more balanced monster that can flatten cities time and time again for the long haul? Either way, it's not a good day to live in the metropolis. Now, RAR 
I'm going to say that funny every time because the title really does amuse me. But RAR, for me, started as a Kickstarter campaign. I had recently gotten onto Kickstarter to support both Rift Tracks' live show Kickstarter campaigns and Fire & Water Network's Rob Kelly, his comic book project Ace Kilroy, which they at least partially did through Kickstarter for two volumes. I found the project by searching through the game section on Kickstarter, and if you like games, I recommend doing that every now and again. You never know what you're going to find. And the theme and the art style immediately sucked me in. I also feel that I helped contribute to the game beyond my pledge. The custom card add-on from the Kickstarter campaign had additional cities, which were nominated by the backers. One of the cities I nominated, Rome, made the cut, albeit in a circuitous way. Rome didn't win any of the votes, there were several votes for which cities were going to be included in the custom add-on, but it was added by another backer as a custom city. So in the end, I sorta, kinda, a little bit, not really, got my nominated city in the game anyway. RAR is a game of card drafting and bidding. You begin by, naturally, creating your monster. This is done by first dealing out a monster card to each player. These cards have a single-syllable monster name based on a Japanese katakana, such as Gi, He, or Go. Then they also have artwork of the monster, and then the specific powers of the monster. These are represented by four symbols. These can be any of fire, radioactive, electric, and toxic. And the different monster cards have a different mix of which, uh, which make up their four power symbols on the bottom of the card. Next, each player is dealt three katakana cards. These also contain four mixed power symbols and have another syllable, again ma matching the katakana on the card. Each player drafts one of these cards and then hands the stack to the player on their left and then repeats one more time. Each player now holds one monster card and two katakana cards. You then arrange the syllables in any order you want to make your monster's name. This is, has no impact on the game directly, but it is specifically included in the directions, because you then announce your Daikaiju to the rest of the game and make their monster roar. Again, roaring is specifically included in part of the directions, and every time I've played this game, we have not skipped this step. Once all of the monsters are ready, it's time to start the carnage. Each player is dealt 12 power cards. These range in value from 1 through 3 for each power type. Players draft cards in the same fashion as before, passing the stacks around until they have 12 cards in their hand. The number of each symbol your monster has determines how many of each type of power card can be played when bidding to destroy cities. Play starts by the player holding the angriest monster card, which is determined by which player is the angriest. Again, this is specifically stated in the rules. The player holding the angriest monster card flips over six cities, and then picks which city will be contested first. Each city has a different victory points value, so some are more valuable than others. The angriest monster begins battle by laying down a set of cards of one of the power types. Think of the four power types like suits in a deck of cards. That is their opening bid. You can play only, only as many cards in a set as you have power symbols on your monster. So for instance, if you have four electric symbols, you can play a set of, at most, four electric cards. The set's value is determined by adding up the face value of the cards and then multiplying by the number of cards. So if you play a 1 and a 3, the power is 4, the sum, times 2, number of cards, for 8. Play then proceeds to the left, where each player must either bid a higher total, it can be of any power type, but still has to be a higher total, or pass. Once you pass, you are out for that city. This continues until all but one player remains. One thing to remember is that you cannot play two sets of the same power for the same city. So if you play a fire set on your first bid, you can't play fire again on your second bid for the same city. The player who makes the highest bid wins the city. The player who passed last gets the angriest monster card, and the cycle starts again. The round continues until there are either no cities left, or none of the players have any cards left. The game lasts three rounds, at the end of which the monster with the highest victory points in destroyed cities is the winner. Now there's additional advanced rules that I did not get into here, such as matching sets of cities or one-time use boost cards as well. 
the these can be added, played or not played at the discretion of the players in the game. When I the first time I played this game, we used the boost cards, but we did not use like the city bonuses. It really depends on what kind of mix you have. So there is some uh, options to make the game more or less uh, deep, depending on the crowd that's playing. Some pros about RAR. The theme of the game, of monsters competing to destroy cities around the world, is well suited to Daikaiju subject matter, and though not much different than Godzilla Stomp, it is a bit more immersive here with the different locales, representing real cities across the globe. The art helps as well, as each monster is bizarre and unique, and each city reflects the city's actual skyline. Bob Canada's artwork is cartoonish and bright, really stands out on the shelf. The art makes it easy to get into your monster persona. There's a good amount of strategy at play here, especially when you get to larger games. Do you pour everything into one high-value city, or do you try to pick off the lower-value cities hoping other players won't use cards on them? You have to not only plan your own bid, but also try to determine, or at the very least guess, what the other players are going to bid as well. One last thing I must mention in the favor of this game is the use of humor. Because these are, if you'll pardon the term, made-up monsters, there is a great potential for silliness and a lot of high spirits around the table, which always makes for a fun game. Cons for this game. Setup, to me, is the biggest one. Once you get into the flow of drafting and bidding, it is fairly easy and straightforward, but it does take some getting used to. And the first time you play, you will be consulting the direction several times, as steps have to be done in a particular order. I know the first time I ran it with my friend Joe and his gamer friends up at the now sadly departed Above Board Games in Rock Hill, South Carolina, I made up a little cheat sheet with the rules and the procedure to help run the game smoother. It does also take a fair while to play a game because of the length of the rounds, so expect a game to last between 45 minutes to an hour depending on the number of players. While an hour is not an incredibly long time, especially compared to some other popular board and card games nowadays, it can be a little daunting for some players. Another thing about players, you need a minimum of three players to play this game. Now, that can be tough if you, it's just a couple, or maybe uh, you and a, uh, yourself and a friend, so you need three people to play, and that can also be a bit of a hurdle, depending on your particular group. The counting can get a little complicated for younger players, but I find that a sheet of scratch paper will solve that problem, usually in most cases. Uh, verdict, this game is fun and funny. It does a great job of letting you live out your daikaiju dreams and turn them into a city-smashing reality. Where have I heard that before? Well, anyway. The game's mechanic requires you to think ahead and plan your round as best you can, not just pour all you have into the first city, necessarily. The artwork on the cards is fantastic, the monster building is both fun, but also strategic. And as I said, you really get into being your own, personally designed giant monster. RAR is my favorite Daikaiju tabletop game, and I've played quite a few of them over the years. Now, this game is still in print. It is available on Amazon, retails for $20 right now. Uh, goes for about that on eBay, too. I don't, don't see a lot of used copies of this game out there. It's a relatively small box because it's all just cards. So it fits into a, you know, a small cube, about hand, about the, not quite cube, like a tall rectangular prism. Uh, and it's, it easily fit in your game closet, and so I, I find this game to be a lot of fun. Very much a worthy purchase for fans of giant monsters and tabletop games, whether you like board games or card games, I think you will enjoy giving RAR a spin. So please check that out. Uh, have you guys played RAR? Would you won that Kickstarter campaign with me, perhaps? Yeah, why don't you send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. We'll talk about RAR and any other giant monster games you want to talk about right here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Eons past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But, awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters.
Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Marvel's Godzilla number 22 was cover dated May 1979 and was released on or about February 13th, 1979. This information, as always, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey and it depicts Godzilla and Devil Dinosaur with Moon Boy on his shoulders fighting against the army of the Lizard Men, including their uh, Saurian Beasts of Burden. Uh, very uh, action-oriented cover. Our writer is Doug Mensch. Our penciler is Herb Trimpey. Our inker is Jack Abel. Letterer is Clem Robbins. The colorist, Mario Sen. Our editor, Al Milgram. And the title is The Devil and the Dinosaur. And our synopsis comes today from marvel.wikia.com. As Godzilla aids Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur in repelling an attack by the Lizardmen, Back on present-day Earth, everyone is taking some much-needed R&R after battling Godzilla for so long. Rob Takaguchi, however, is upset that they sent Godzilla to another time period where he may get killed. Meanwhile, in Reed's lab, Dr. Doom's time machine starts to become unstable after being exposed to Godzilla's radioactive physiology and is at risk of exploding. Back on Moon Boy's world, Godzilla, Devil Dinosaur, and Moon Boy successfully manage to repel the invading Lizardmen and save Moon Boy's home of Flame Valley by trapping the invaders in the mysterious pits. At that time, Godzilla suddenly returns to his original size. Back on present-day Earth, Reed moves the time machine to Times Square as it's a wide open space, but instead of exploding, it transports the now fully-sized Godzilla back to the present day, smack in the middle of New York City. Next issue, back to his full, enormous size in the middle of Manhattan, the King once more. Bonus, the most colorful Avenging group of guest stars ever assembled. Well, this one pretty much leaves it all on the page right there, so let's get right into the notes. The cover, as I said, it's an all-out action cover. Uh, the, the figure of the raider on the right-hand side in the foreground really gives me a Jack Kirby vibe which is appropriate. We're going to see more of that as we work our way through the through the issue. Just from the cover, you definitely know what to expect inside this issue, at, at, for the A-plot at least. It shows, you know, Godzilla blasting one of the dinosaurs with his atomic breath, Devil Dinosaur grappling with one of them, the raiders charging at them with weapons. Really informs you of what type of story you can expect, and it delivers on that expectation. Page 1. I'm not as much of a fan of this splash page, Godzilla and Devil Dinosaur are very small in the background, and then Moon Boy appears to be out of scale with Devil Dinosaur, coming up too high against Devil Dinosaur's leg for his normal size, whereas, you know, typically he rides on Devil's back. It doesn't look like this Moon Boy could fit on Devil's back. Perhaps he's supposed to be closer, but the art doesn't really convey that very well. The main figure of the raider, who's looking backwards, is stiff. He's not posed very well. It doesn't have a very dynamic feel to it. And we only have the head of one of the beasts just kind of peeking in through the side. So we don't get an idea that this is a party composed of, you know, the ferocious lizard men and their, uh, you know, dinosaur slave beasts. And we just, it doesn't really get that feeling from this splash page. It's not a very appealing opening to the comic, but it leads into pages two and three, which is a double splash page. And this is simply amazing. There are monsters and men everywhere, bodies going this way and that, smoking volcano in the background, bursting fire, pterodactyls swooping down out of the sky. We have Devil Dinosaur kicking one of the beasts. That uh, The kick was being one of his trademark moves from his own series, using his big legs to stomp people. Godzilla's breathing fire on another beast, and smoke is pouring out of his nostrils. The use of the double-page splash here again reminds me of Jack Kirby. I very, very frequently saw, especially on his stuff in the 1970s, where Jack Kirby would have a splash page for page one, and then pages two and three would be a double-page splash. I strongly suspect that Herb Trimpey was emulating or otherwise channeling Kirby in this story as an homage, being that Jack Kirby, of course, was the creator of Devil Dinosaur. Pages 7 and then 10 and 11, there's an advertisement in between them. This is our first interlude back to New York City. And uh, this interlude covers the regular characters in the book. So Dum Dum Duggan, Hugh Howards, Gabe Jones, Jimmy Wu, Tamara, Dr. Takaguchi, Dr. Hawkins, and Rob Takaguchi. I appreciate that 
um, Doug Mensch is checking in with the book's other stars. But in this case, placing it where they do right after the battle has begun, the pacing is impacted. Uh, as a reader, you want to get back to the big battle. As I said, I, I like that we don't forget about these characters because a lot of these characters we've been following for almost as long as we've been following Godzilla. Uh, and most of them appeared have appeared in almost every issue, with the exception of Dr. Hawkins, who's a relatively new character. So I do like that we're not just forgetting about them, but having this uh, three pages worth of it right after the battle starts does kind of uh, negatively impact the pace that's been set on the early pages of the story. Page 14, panel 2. As the battle continues to rage, Godzilla does one of his special moves from this series, which is the Gorilla Press Slam, picking up one of the beasts over his head. Uh, we've seen this uh, several times before in the last few years. Down on the page, Moonboy uses his brains and gets the idea to lure the uh, lizard men into a trap, and Godzilla follows. Mench calls out in the caption box again the parallel connection with Moonboy and Rob Takaguchi. It's almost a sort of a Gamera approach to Godzilla at this stage. There had been, at this point, we are post-Godzilla's Revenge, so there had been, you know, a Godzilla film that was designed entirely to appeal to children, but Godzilla never had the direct connection or interaction with children that Gamera did in his Showa film. So, I, I, you know, I, I know that the Gamera films did play somewhat at this point. They were not as popular on television as they were as they would become in the 1980s, but I know that they had played on AIP television, so I've started to wonder if maybe Doug Mensch was drawing on that, that sort of um, show a Gamera connection with Gamera and children in order to, you know, make Rob kind of our audience identification character and the character that Godzilla also identified with. Over now on page 15, we catch up with the ever-loving blue-eyed thing, Benjamin Grimm. I like that Ben is eating a meal here. He's sitting down in the Baxter building ready to to get his get his grub on. He's got a meal of a drink. I'm assuming it's a soda because it looks like a fountain drink type of cup. He's got two giant hamburgers and then a full-size bag of potato chips. He gets one bite in and you see this almost perfectly uh, semi-circular bite out of the hamburger before Ben gets a bad feeling about something and leaves his meal. I feel very bad that Ben doesn't get to eat his burgers because you know he's probably hungry. He's a big guy, likes to eat. So I felt bad for, for Ben. On page 17, we, in the footnote, we get a call back to Devil Dinosaur number 9, where the same mysterious Pitts actually sent Devil Dinosaur to the modern-day Earth-616. Remember that at this time, Devil Dinosaur was presumed to take place in Earth-616 prehistoric past. So this has been retconned now to be, a, I guess, a portal to a different Earth in the multiverse. But at this point, it, it was it's unclear exactly what the pits do because the old hag that is the keeper of the pits says that they could go just, they could end up just about anywhere. So I do like this callback to the original Devil Dinosaur series. And of course, issue number nine was the final issue of Devil Dinosaur. So Mensch looking backwards as he, uh, you know, gets to correct references for his adventure with the uh, Devil Dinosaur here a few years after. On page 19, panel 2, uh, we see Godzilla breathing atomic fire right at the Lizard Men, and on, again, as I've said numerous times during this series, I can only assume all of them die horrible deaths from radiation poisoning. Uh, we're just going to move right past that. Now, starting on page 22 and throughout the rest of the book, Trimpy and Abel use copious amounts of Kirby Crackle around the various um, energies that we see uh you know, starting to build up. This is around the pits, around the time machine, and around Godzilla himself as he starts to become uh, impacted by the energy of the pits. Considering that in this book we have one of Jack Kirby's solo creations, Devil Dinosaur, and then one of his most endearing and beloved collaborations with the Fantastic Four, again, this approach with using the Kirby Crackle seems intentional. I don't know if this was Trimpy or Abel, or perhaps this was in the script, maybe Mensch alluded to this, but as a reader, I really like it because it gives me a, a solid connection to the way that Kirby drew both the Fantastic Four and Devil Dinosaur using that Kirby crackle. So even though it's a little thing, it doesn't directly impact the story in any way. And if you don't notice it, it doesn't negatively impact the story either. But I like that it's there and it, it adds a little something extra to me especially being a as big a fan of Jack Kirby's Devil Dinosaur that I am to see the little Kirby artistic 
homages throughout this issue. On page 26, uh, the time machine has finally gotten so unstable that Reed grabs it and reaches out the window of the Baxter building and places it in the middle of Times Square. Uh, now, admittedly, they did set this up because he had Johnny go clear out Times Square a few pages earlier. But I am not sure where exactly the Baxter building is supposed to be located in Manhattan. So I cannot comment any further on the logistics of this. But it's very, very funny looking to see Reed's long arm just stretching out uh, like a cartoon, uh, I don't know, like a cartoon road or something from the Baxter building down to the middle of Times Square. It's it's very amusing. We see this uh, occasionally in various Fantastic Four comics where Reed stretches in a way that it's useful for the plot. But if you think about it too much, it gets a little wonky. And this is one of those. It definitely brought a smile to my face, the idea of him stretching all the way from the Baxter building to the middle of Times Square. And, you know, I, I can only imagine him looping around buildings or up and down uh, corners and, and, and that sort of thing. Page 30 is our final story page. We have Godzilla standing tall right in the middle of Manhattan, back at full size, flanked behind him by Behemoth. On the, we have one, we actually have two panels on, on this page. On the left hand side, we get the panel of all the energy ex being, um, exposed or expressed out of the pits. And uh, we get the, the bright pink energy. And it's very, you know, very kind of a hot pink almost, very warm. And then we go to the panel on the, the right and we see Godzilla standing before a kind of a pale orange sky. It's a, even though it's orange and orange is a warm color, it's kind of a cool contrast to the pink next to it. So very, uh, very nice coloring choice there uh, by Mario Sen. I, I like the use of the, the pinks and the orange here to represent, uh, you know, the, the transition. So one is clearly set in one time and the other is clearly in the other time. As the blow-off to this little side adventure with Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy, this issue is fun and action-packed. The initial check-in with the supporting cast drags the pacing down a little, but there is enough widescreen primordial warfare to more than compensate for this. We have finally put a cap on the shrinking Godzilla storyline and are well set up for the last two issues of this series. I appreciated all of the Jack Kirby homages and the artwork, and the team-up of Godzilla and Devil Dinosaur is exciting and well-executed. Strong issue and a great ending to get the reader ready to come back next month as we move into the last couple of issues of this series. Bullpen bulletins this month uh, in Stan Sopak. Stan talks about how readers should write into CBS and NBC to praise the Marvel TV shows, which currently are the Hulk and the Fantastic Four cartoon. Uh, the Boldens themselves talk about the success with Spider-Woman, about how they're going to be developing a TV show, but also how changes are coming to the book and saying that no matter how good a certain creative team might be, it may not be necessarily right, which I thought was kind of an interesting approach to, you know, rather than saying, oh, well, they're they're moving on to something else. So we brought in these people saying, like, well, we, we understand this may not be working as well as it could. So we're going to try something else. The last bullpen bulletin also reveals that it is, in fact, Jim Shooter who writes the bulletins, which I'm not sure that they had ever uh, mentioned that before. So I thought that was, was rather interesting. The Godzilla Grams are mostly praised for the book, although Damon Kaufman of Heber City, Utah, did not like the cowboy issues. The response is, you ever hear of a change of pace? And then on the bottom of the letters page again, we get the same house ad that we got previously for the Shogun Warriors from uh, Mensch and Trimpy. So gearing up uh, for that book as well, even as we are finishing up on Godzilla. Uh, if you would like to read this, it is collected in Essential Godzilla, if you can find that volume, and that's about it. Otherwise, you'll have to track down the single. Getting into the ads, um, we get a, you know, a few hodgepodge ads. There's several pages, because I guess of the two-page splash, there's several instances of two ad pages side-by-side -side in this book, uh, and not as many just single-page ads, which I thought was was kind of interesting. Um, you know, we do get a rather interesting Marvel's comic subscription ad and says is now because we're foolish and big hearted, the niftiest, cuddliest offer this side of an invite to Dr. Doom's surprise birthday party, which I think Professor Allen could probably get us an invite to. It's the Shogun Warriors and the Micronauts. Subscribe to our two latest and greatest triumphs for only $9, 12 issues each, and get free our Marvel special edition of Galactica in full color 
$1.50 value free. So you get, if you get Shogun Warriors and Micronauts, you get the Marvel Super Special for Battlestar Galactica. I just think this is interesting because this is three of their licensed properties all in one deal. Makes me wonder perhaps if they were a little concerned about people buying the licensed books. Micronauts was fairly successful. Shogun Warriors, you know, only lasted uh, 20 issues. And really, I, I don't think we can consider it a success. I mean, I certainly enjoyed the book, but certainly not an endearing property that people still clamor for, whereas the Micronauts uh, had a bit more longevity. And I, I don't have the Marvel Super Special of Battlestar Galactica, but I do have the paperback version where they've cut it and rearranged it to fit into a pocketbook um, you know, style paperback. And I remember enjoying that. I, I've heard different things about the Galactica ongoing. I've heard some people say it's just, it's fun. And some people say it just makes absolutely no sense. But neat to see the, the Shogun Warriors and the Micronauts side by side. Uh, we get a house ad for the all new Fantastic Four television cartoon series with Herbie the Robot hanging out in there along with Reed Richards, the Thing, and the Invisible Girl who is um, appropriately fading away to invisibility. And they do call out in a burst stories by Stanley and Roy Thomas, designs by Jack Kirby. I think that's rather nice, even if the Human Torch did not make the cut. On the opposite page, we get an ad that I have actually seen many, many times over the years, but I never really gave this ad much thought until I started listening to a show that listener Chuck Rodriguez put me onto. And I want to give a shout out here to the Grindbin podcast. Because this ad says, make money customizing cars, vans, cycles, inside and out. And if you go listen to the Grind Bin, just search for the Grind Bin, you'll find them. They're on Facebook, Twitter, they're all over the place. You will know the importance of, of the van <laughs> and, and what that means. And all I want to say to the Grind Bin is, hey, Bobby, I got the money. So let's move on. <laughs> uh, continuing through the book, we get more hodgepodge. There's a lot of hodgepodge ads this time out. Um, we do get a hostess ad, and much like the last hostess ad we did, this one stars my favorite superhero, the Invincible Iron Man. So I think we might need to have a dramatic reading of Iron Man in Brains over Brawn. Once we crush Iron Man, we can take over the Stark plant. And who knows where we'll stop? Iron Man? Just the person we were looking for. Sorry, friends. My boot jets are faster than your weapons. Oof! Apparently, you don't know the power of my repulsor rays, either. Here, take your minds off me and your evil schemes. Have some hostess fruit pies. Cherry for you, apple for you. Oh boy, real fruit filling. Me, I like the light tender crust. While they enjoy hostess fruit pies, I'll keep them in place with my immobilizing ray. We'll just stay here and... Enjoy these great taste and pies. And I'll get back to being Tony Stark. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. The last one had a gang using a souped-up car that was trying to crash through Iron Man and go into the Stark plant. These guys have a tank. So I guess maybe they're from the same gang and they're realizing that, okay, a car didn't work. Let's go to a tank, right? So I don't know. Maybe the next one will have a fighter jet or something in it. Um, yeah, I mean, Tony just, he handles these dudes so, so, you know, nonchalantly. He doesn't care. It's just great seeing Iron Man in his classic red and golds here. And I do love Hostess Fruit Pie, so I can't, can't argue with that. Um, back cover is more Battlestar Galactica, full color t-shirts. Actually, some of these shirts are rather nice. The Invasion shirt is the cover of the novelization. It's actually interesting because we have a, a Viper jet in the back and we see the army of Cylons. And actually we see Starbuck and Apollo, uh, their, their backs are to us shooting at the Cylons. I thought that was neat, but, uh, you know. It was, it was, we're getting on to that time of Battlestar Galactica getting into, uh, into 1979 here. So, all right. Uh, what did you guys think about Godzilla number 22? Did you enjoy the blow off of the story with Godzilla and Devil Dinosaur? Are you excited that Godzilla's back in the modern day, back to full size, apparently going to be tangling with the Avengers? If that tagline is, uh, is any indication, give me and drop me an email. We'll talk about it on the show. Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com. Hope to hear from you about this one. All right, guys, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Gotcha, man. 
Or maybe... Dragon! Play! How about... Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazers! Or this... The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under Two True Freaks Presents Anime Freaks. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it is time for a little bit of... That's right, listener feedback. And if you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, you can send an email to Directive at yahoo.com. You can also get in touch with me on Facebook or Twitter. Just listen to the outro of the show and they'll have all the information you need. So our first email today comes from good friend of the show and loyal listener, Mr. Rich S., who writes, Memories of a Pacific Death Trap. Hi, Luke. I just gave your Son of Godzilla episode a second listen and decided I just had to write in. Sure, I agree that it is a divisive film for fans, with Manila being the Jar Jar Binks of Toho, but I have only love for this film, and I'll tell you why. In the late 1970s, when I was around 9 or 10, my dad decided to bribe me. Mind you, this was in the days of you see it when it's on TV when it's on, or the other choice being you don't see it, because few people had VCRs. However, my dad had a VCR at work, and he told me that he could bring it home for a week or two so that he could record the movie of my choice, and that I could watch said movie over and over until I got sick of it, or until the VCR had to go back to work, whichever came first. All I had to do was clean my room and keep it that way for the summer. Knowing that Son of Godzilla, a movie that I had never seen before, was to be shown soon, I readily agreed to his terms. Needless to say, I fell in love with the movie when I saw it, and that fondness only grew as I watched it again and again, oftentimes with friends and copious amounts of buttered popcorn and Pepsi. I'm sure my parents must have gotten sick of listening to the film, but that was the price of a clean room, at least for that summer. A year or two later, my dad would repeat the bribe with Godzilla on Monster Island, another film I had never seen until then. That was about 1980 because I remember also recording Empire Strikes Back action figure commercials. Okay, that is really neat. See, my my dad, I was born in 1980, so you're, you're a few years older than me. And I my dad was an early VCR adopter, so I have a lot of memories of watching m- movies, yes, but also cartoons and uh, you know, that TV specials that were taped off of uh, as they aired. So I remember having the commercials and all that and a lot of them. And I, that's just a great story. What a great bribe, though. I would do that. I'd keep my room clean uh, if, if I had to get access to a Godzilla movie I'd never seen before. That's just fantastic. I really like that. Uh, Rich continues, on a side note, I have never seen a VCR like the one my dad brought from his work. I have no idea what kind it was, other than to say that it was many times larger than the VHS model we bought years later. The tapes were equally humongous. You know, your your um, your note here, I do know that there were other types of commercially available tapes, ca- video cassette tapes, other than VHS, and it might have been one of those other formats. I've never dug into that too much. 
I'm such a big VHS fan, I always tend to think of VHS, but I do know in the 70s, there were others that, they were never really designed for home use, because obviously it was VHS and, and Betamax were the two that had the, the big home use uh, war, so to speak. But there were other ones, commercial tapes and stuff like that, so I'm, I'm guessing it was probably a commercial style um, you know, VHS recorder, which would have, or not VHS, um, uh, videotape recorder, I should say, that your, your dad had. And that would make sense if he was bringing it from work. That would probably be uh, a commercial style one instead of a home use style one. That's still very neat. I still remember my dad's first VCR and that was a, a, you know, VHS format, but it was huge. It was one of these top loading ones where you'd hit eject and the whole carriage would rise up on springs and you'd have to load the tape in and then push it back down to get in. So it had to sit on top of the uh, of the television set, the old uh, wood cabinet television sets, because you couldn't have anything stacked on top of it. Oh, I, re I remember that. And then we actually, he actually had a second one as well that also was top loading like that. So when I remember the first time seeing a front loading VCR, of course that I thought was weird because well, I mean that's what you do. You lift the thing up and put the tape in. It's you know that that's just the way it works. It's funny the way that things change like that, and then you know it, it really it's really one of those traditional things where it's whatever you were introduced to is going to be the one that's going to make the most sense to you uh, in your in your brain until you see the tangible benefits of doing something different uh, rich continues your descriptions of body slams flaming death and the big g dealing with manila tantrums really brought me back to the memories your extensive view of issue 20 of the marvel godzilla series was also equally spot on although back when it came out i had the feeling as a kid that it was just uh, kind of another filler issue. Not so with the next two starring Devil Dinosaur. Can't wait to see your reactions to those issues as you got um, two-ish, two episodes ago and, and then on this episode. I am equally looking forward to the Avarice versus Vanilla breakdown. Uh, I love monsters who can turn things into Mr. Bubble. I hope you like that one. I, I really enjoyed Avarice and Vanilla. Uh, by the way, why the heck does Avarice have the same body as Red King? Do they have the same mama? Just wondering. Best wishes, Rich S. Rich, first off, thank you for writing in. This is a wonderful email. Love hearing the stuff about your, uh, your parents bribing you with Son of Godzilla, which, I, again, I would have totally taken. You know... Uh, Aberus has the same body as Red King because money. You know, they, uh, Subaraya was turning monsters around quick. They had to, sometimes it was just a new head and a coat of spray paint. Sometimes it was the only thing that changed, uh, one monster into another monster. And that's kind of what happened here. You know, Aberus is a little bit more involved because they did repaint the whole thing. They didn't just put some streaks of paint on them. Um, but yeah, that, that, that I, I've always kind of chalked up of why we don't get more as neat a monster as he is while we don't get more merchandise for him because he does look a lot like red king although you'd think they could just mold a new head pop the you know red king head off and pop then ever head on but hey you know I'm, i hope you enjoyed those episodes I, I had a lot of fun covering those ultraman episodes i hope you enjoyed listening to my coverage of them thank you to, uh, for continuing to be a, a loyal listener of the show and thank you for writing in our next email tonight comes from um, former guest on the show and uh, good friend of mine and good friend of the show, Professor Alan Middleton. And uh, we last heard Alan actually on that Ultraman episode where he gave his pre-feedback about those Ultraman episodes as he's been watching along with us on his Mill Creek DVDs. And uh, Professor Alan writes, EDD number 66. Luke, you mentioned Johnny Sacco and his flying robot in episode 66. That rang a distant bell for me, and what I saw on the internet about this show has convinced me that I saw it growing up. I remember Ultraman more clearly, so I wonder if Johnny Sacco was shown less often. But I bet for it, I bet that at least for a while they were shown back to back, maybe with Speed Racer thrown in for good measure. I've really enjoyed your coverage of Godzilla, and I'm sad to see it come to an end shortly. Keep up the good work. Thanks for still being a buddy, even after we've met in person. Professor Helen, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Darkness to Light, Quarterbin Podcast. Um, Alan, thank you very much for the for the kind words. Yeah, Johnny Sacco and Ultraman, I'm I'm sure they were because you know Johnny Sacco still exists in dubbed form from its run uh, under uh, American International Pictures Television uh, Group, and uh, I think I may have mentioned this on that episode. That Comet still shows the AIP dubs of Johnny Sacco as part of their uh, Saturday and Sunday morning lineups. Uh, along with a, a show I'm not familiar with called Men Into Space, which is another, uh, it's a black and white science fiction show. I think it's an English show, actually, but uh, I, I, I just haven't done the research. Um, yeah, so it, it's, and it, again, it, Johnny Sacco is very kind of similar, except that the, the presence of Johnny himself makes it very kitty relative to Ultraman, which even though, 
you know, there, there are some kid characters on the Ultraman shows. They're not the stars. Usually they sometimes, uh, uh, oh, what's his name will be a star of a particular episode, but Johnny is front and center. You know, he gets a gun and everything, just like all the other agents. I think it's unicorn is the name of the outfit, uh, the good guy outfit in, in Johnny Sacco. And it is available on DVD. Um, and as far as Godzilla, I'm, I'm really enjoying it too. I knew it was only going to be 24 issues when I started it. So it is, you know, I knew it was only going to last a certain amount of time, but we are going to be spoiler alert for future episodes. After we finish up with Marvel Godzilla, we are going to continue to cover the Marvel Godzilla characters as they appear elsewhere in the Marvel universe. So we'll be taking a look at some additional appearances of Godzilla himself, uh, of Red Ronin, and, uh, you know, maybe some other stuff that perhaps may tie in with that Marvel Godzilla. So even though the series will be ending, we'll still be having some additional Marvel Comics coverage uh, going forward after that. So look forward to that. Thank you again, Professor, for writing in. Always glad to hear from you. And it was, as I said uh, previously, very nice to uh, meet you and your family at Heroes Con this past summer. That was a a blast. And also shout out to the Sutherlands, Darren and Ruth over from Warward Worlds and uh, Trekker Talk and Xenozoic Tales. Uh, great fun had at Heroes Con. If you ever get a chance to come to Charlotte, North Carolina at the middle of June, uh, come and visit Heroes Con. If you're a, you know, it's family friendly, comics oriented show. Uh, really great. Had a lot of fun at that show over the years. So Social media likes, shares, and retweets for the last episode came from Adam Tebow, Alan Middleton, Anthony Wendell, Brian Sievert, Chris Mounts, Chuck Rodriguez, Derek Crabb, Derek Cook, Fan Holes Podcast, Gene Hendricks, the hair metal hero Chris Tyler, Jason Giaconetti, Joe Crawford, Joe Rad, Joey Weiser, Movies, 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 Podcast Partners, Relatively Geeky, Robert Ludwig, Robert Ward, Siskoid, Tim Elliott, Tony Click, and Warlord Worlds. All right, what are we going to be talking about next episode on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, we're taking a break from Godzilla and Gamma. We're going to one of our off-brand Daikaijus uh, again, and we're taking a look at Gappa, the Triphibian Monster, also known as Monster from a Prehistoric Planet. This movie from Naihatsu, uh, they never really broke into the giant monster films beyond this. They were more, more known for romantic genre films, actually, believe it or not. Uh, but a one I have been aware of since I was a little kid, ever since seeing the poster in a uh, big hardcover uh, history of like monster movies book, where it claimed that Gappa was even mightier than King Kong, and the concept of a triphibian monster just boggled my five-year-old brain, because it's like, triphibian? It's like, that's not even a real word! We're also going to be taking a look at Marvel's Godzilla number 23, now that the King of Monsters is back in the modern Marvel Universe. We will see just what happens there, and as we race towards the end of that series, just what's going to go down uh, with uh, with the S.H.I.E.L.D. squad and anybody, all the other heroes that are coming in and all that. So, very much looking forward to that one. Of course, we'll have any news, any updates about any of the uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, the Godzilla anime, SSSS Gridman, or anything else that uh, fits what we talk about here on Earth Destruction Directive. We'll, of course, have more listener feedback. Our email sack is currently empty, so if you guys could send in some feedback, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, easy way to get your name said in a podcast. I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, <laughs> I did it for a long time. You know, I still do. Um, I, I consider myself something of a podcast letter hack. Uh, but that's mostly just because I do love uh, telling my other my fellow podcasters how much I enjoy their shows, and um, you know, so I appreciate every one of you, each and every one of you guys out there, guys and gals, I should say. And once again, just like to say thank you for your patronage. All are welcome at Earth Destruction Directive. Thank you again for downloading. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. 
I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle Eljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.